Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And today uh, we are talking with former top five player on the WTA. She's currently the host of the Real DNA podcast with some great guests, including Andy Murray, Belinda Bencich, Garbina Muguruza, and more. And she's also an entrepreneur who is launching her own perfume, uh, Daniela Hentukova, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks uh, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's great to have you back. And Danielle, it seems every time we speak, you've got some new venture that you're launching yourself into. Uh, Last time we spoke, you were just starting out as a podcast host. Uh, Now you've got the new product coming out as well. Uh, Tell us first with the podcast, how have things sort of evolved over your first year doing it? And what have been the big successes and, and challenges for you there? Yeah, you're so right. It seems like, you know, I retired for a reason. I retired so that I would have a quiet and uh, relaxing life. But I, I think the, the opposite is, uh, is the truth. But uh, I'm really enjoying it. So um, going to the, back to the podcast, uh, yeah, it's been an amaz- amazing season with, with guests that inspire my, myself very much. And I think that's the biggest um, satisfaction I, I take away from, from the interviews, not actually not really interviews. I, I always say I'm just chatting with my friends is that I get to learn so much about, you know, how they approach life, how they go about things. So it's been an amazing learning experience for myself. And whenever that happens, I'm hoping, well, if I'm taking so much, out of that podcast, I, I hope that, you know, it touches people in one way or the other as well. And it can be inspiring. I, I do believe big time that we are here to, to help each other grow and learn. And, uh, you know, if I can do that for the people listening, then that's, that's the biggest reward I can, I can get. Yeah, one of the aspects I think I, I love about the podcast is, as you said, it's, it's really like real life conversations uh, between tennis players and uh, many of them I've enjoyed. Uh, Garbina Muguruza, I just listened to the other day and talking about her summit on Kilimanjaro was unbelievable. Um, you had Ivan Lubacic as well on, which I found interesting. And I, I felt like you two kind of bonded in the sense that you both felt like you retired at the at the ideal time. Um, do you still feel this way? And I guess how important was it for you to sort of dive into new you know, new ventures and new work post-career? Well, we, we felt at the time that there was the ideal kind of the age uh, to retire. We, we were both 34 and we felt like, you know, this is way past what we are supposed to be doing. Um, we actually felt old. And I, I remember first time I started on the tour, I, I told everyone on my team, like, if you see me playing past the age of 30, like, just kick me out of the court. Like, this is <laughs> embarrassing. And now we see, you know, with these three um, guys out of this planet and with Serena still around that, you know, age is really becoming literally just a, just a number in the world of sport. And uh, it's, so it has changed big time. But uh, overall, I felt like that was the right time for me. I, I felt like I was ready for, for um, you know, to explore new adventures and, you know, one after another just keeps coming. So definitely, I, I, in, my, in my case, I almost feel like I've played maybe two, three years too long. That's interesting because to me, 34 seems so young still. So uh, I guess it depends what side of the number you're on. And uh, clearly you you chose the right time because you've transitioned so easily, it seems, and so well into 
your next phase, your next career. I won't say retirement because you've got a lot of working years left, of course. Uh, as Ben mentioned, you've had such a strong lineup of guests on the podcast. And he and I were talking about this before you joined us on the line. It really speaks to the relationships you must have made during your time on the tour. Some players really stay in their bubble and and don't, you know, engage socially as much perhaps with their peers. And you clearly have, have made those connections. Um, who's someone that you haven't yet had on the podcast uh, that you'd really be excited to land as a, as a future guest from the tennis world? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, oof, uh, obviously there are so many amazing um, personalities in our game, but I think we must also not forget it's a, it's a lot about the people behind the scenes. And for those, maybe I have even more respect, you know, the tournament directors. You know, I talked a couple of weeks ago to Craig Tiley and he had the, all the pressure of the world on his shoulders and how they go about, um, you know, dealing with those situations. Another tournament director, Guy Forget, the same thing. So I think those kind of people... Um, I maybe respect even more because as a player, you don't realize what goes on behind the scenes. Um, and there are so many involved. So, I mean, to if I would have to reach all the people I want to have on the show, I think it's going to take years uh, because that's how rich I think the field of tennis world is. And that's why I feel so privileged to be part of it first as a player and now from the other side as well. Craig Tiley is a good segue just to kind of the first portion of our tennis season and uh, the Australian Open, of course, in the books. We're, we're down with one Grand Slam and three more to go. Um, you know, I, you're still an avid tennis fan yourself. Just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what we saw from our first Grand Slam, a, a great win from Naomi Osaka, and of course, another title from uh, Novak Djokovic. Yeah, I mean, just looking at it from purely as a fan of the sport, it was amazing just to see people in the crowd, and just uh, having more of a, a real atmosphere because last uh, tournament I commentated on was the ATP finals in London. And that was just so sad because we were the only broadcast um, on site in the O2 arena. <laughs> it was completely empty. So uh, just being able to, to feel the energy from people watching, uh, I think that was already a victory on its own. And uh, yeah, well, Novak proved once again that uh, when it really matters, uh, he just uh, pushes the gears to another planet. Um, he was obviously struggling big time going through the tournament. But then that's where these three guys are so different to anyone I've ever seen uh, playing tennis that um, on the biggest occasions, they just uh, become, you know, twice as good as the players. And they have this ability that no one else has. And that's why, to me, all three are going to be the greatest we ever had uh, in the history of our sport. And it's a privilege to to be able to watch them. And Naomi just uh, keeps confirming what an incredible, tough uh, young lady she has become off the court. And I think um, that braveness she she carries it around. At the same time, humbleness, even though you know she's, uh, as we all know, a, a huge superstar of our game, that helps her to to play the way she has. The Australian That's Open. Super. Oh, sorry, Ben, go ahead. Oh, I was just wanted to follow up uh, just in, in terms of one superstar we love to talk about on this podcast, and uh, our listeners are always eager to to see her play is, is Bianca Andreescu. And, uh, you know, for you, I, I know, of course, you had a long career, and through those stretches of longevity, you're going to deal with injuries. You had a few serious ones in the past. Um, from your perspective, I guess, during your playing career, what was the most 
challenging aspect when you were first returning to the court after that long layoff? Is it sort of kind of doubts in your mind about can I play the same way or is sort of anxiety about that or just a, a fear that you're going to re-injure yourself if you do something wrong? Uh, well, there are a few aspects and, um, you know, having to go through a few injuries. Luckily, I didn't have as many given how long I was on the tour. I didn't think it was that bad, just more towards the end. But um, say the first three quarters of my career, I think um, I did pretty well managing to always do the rehab, always be as fit as I can. So to prevent all the injuries, um, but coming back, it's uh, it's the toughest I would say is the toughest um, task for any athlete to, especially being on the level as Bianca was, um, you know, the expectations are superb high, no matter how long you've been away from the game. I think the biggest key there is to literally, and it's very hard to do, but to forget everything you've done in the past to kind of accept that you are starting from zero and that, you know, that US Open title didn't happen. <laughs> I know it's hard, but I think it helps to, to um, keep staying in the present moment, not having too much of an expectation and just to do what she did before she got to the title. Um, so it's almost like going back to the beginning and just having the patience um, as far as purely biomechanics. The toughest thing is even when we are healthy and the body allows you to play the way you want. Uh, your brain is still blocking you to do that because you are so afraid of that pain. And that just takes um, time to, to get over. So I would say patience and acceptance are the two biggest words to, to get through situations like that. The last time, Danny, that I saw you play was at the uh, Tiebreak Tens event in New York City, which I think was almost uh, about three years ago now. Um, wow. That wasn't too long after you had retired, so you looked pretty competitive out there. Um, when we last spoke, you said you didn't miss life on the tour really at all, um, and that you were, you know, transitioning so well into this next phase. Do you still feel like we won't be seeing you back in a doubles or mixed doubles capacity one day? I just want to see a year later if that sort of has changed, if your stance has changed, and and how much tennis do you play these days, even just for fun? Oh gosh, that's a good one because I keep hearing this from many different directions, um, many different proposals for doubles, mixed doubles. So I'm like, what's happening here? And I have to say sometimes when I commentate, I'm like, hmm, I wonder maybe I should be out there. But uh, no, uh, nothing has changed. Even more so, I play less than before. <laughs> I miss it less than before. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it's been incredibly wonderful part of my life I wouldn't say part of my life it's been my life um, but doing what I'm doing now gives me just as much fulfillment I would not be able to now you know talk to you guys sitting at, in my home I would be somewhere between Doha and Miami or whatever and yes playing the match I would do that tomorrow there's no question about it but all of the rest of it and not being able to have the base and be near my family and my friends? No, no chance. Mm -mm. I feel that'll probably answer part of my next question, but I'm gonna ask it anyways. Uh, you seem so comfortable with the commentating and obviously that's a skill set that you have. Has coaching ever crossed your mind? Have you ever been approached by perhaps a younger Slovakian player or, or anyone for that matter? Um, and, and given that any consideration? Yeah, I've been, appro been approached, um, um, but uh, Again, you know, knowing what it takes, 
uh, coaching on the tour no way i mean if i have to do that then i would be playing <laughs> that's for sure um and i um i don't know if i can make a difference and give what i want to give if if it's just a part-time now more of a consulting and mentoring and being there just like we are chatting now and giving directions advices uh maybe mentally and off the court or doing a you know few weeks in an academy or few weeks with a player but not traveling and if i know it could help i'm i'm open to that but i would have to believe that you know i'm not doing it just just for i don't know what reason that it would really help the player but um i would say more like on the mentoring part uh i think i would i would really enjoy that because um you know uh, having the experience inside me it would be a shame not to not to not to share it with with someone that you know could benefit from that it, it's easy to ask uh, players questions i think when they're in the midst of their careers and then uh, when they're post-career I, I kind of like to look back and think of my fond memories of them and when i think of you as a player i think of three set matches and uh you know you were you were dubbed the queen of three setters and uh for good reason and and the record in three setters is phenomenal 181 wins 82 losses um did you play matches trying to get into three sets and also uh just what about your game do you think allowed you to have a lot of success in those longer matches you know, it's so funny. We talked about it uh, two days ago on the golf course because I'm the same there. You know, the longer we play, the better I start, <laughs> yeah, okay. so I start to hit them. So I'm kind of using the same technique, uh, tactic in golf as well. Um, so, yes, I guess it's uh, it's the uh, the idea of my life. The longer, the better. I don't know. <laughs> I Honestly, it's not something I'm trying to do on a purpose. Uh, I would say uh, my physical endurance. It's been always very strong so i think for the for that matter i always went into the matches actually with that mind set up that no matter how long we have to be on the court the longer we are there it's going to be in my favor so i think because of that i was able to to win quite a lot of those three set matches but um was that my initial <laughs> goal <laughs> no no for sure not and my family <laughs> didn't like that either or my team to having to watch so many of them so um yeah it's funny how it just transferred to other sports as well that's hilarious Daniela. as if you weren't busy enough in in retirement between your tennis commentating and and the podcast uh let's talk about the new venture that you're starting in in launching your own perfume what can you share with our listeners about this? Is this a perfume for heading out for a nice evening? Is it when you step off the tennis court? Uh, tell us what the uh, the focus is with this product. Thank you. Well, it's a uh, it's been a quite amazing journey, and um, yes, it's uh, today is the day that it just came out, and uh, it really confirms that when we keep our eyes and heart open, uh, the life brings us things that we don't really expect um i met with this guy on a train from prague to to bratislava and he said his friend in florence has this uh, perfumery shop and he feels like we should connect and here we are i'm looking at, at my perfumes i'm like how you know it's, it's just uh, divine how things work in life sometimes um and yes it's a, it's a very exclusive fragrance uh, i wouldn't say it's something you wear as soon as you step off the court it's more of a special occasions uh, because it's a very strong scent uh, it took us 4 months to to develop it but um honestly 
uh, when Silena gave it to me for the first time to try it, um, I started to cry right away because the emotion was so strong because it literally captures all of my life in a bottle. Um, it captures the, the scent of, of my first wooden racket and the memories of uh, my grandmother teaching me how to play tennis all the way to the victories um, in Indian Wells. But at the same time, it captures a lot of um, tears, um, sadness, being alone. So that's why I call it DNA because it's the full spectrum of my life and of my emotions. And I think the most important message here, especially for the for the young uh, people out there, you know, with the social media, everyone thinks that, you know, things just come easy to us and suddenly the victories appear or the perfume just sits on the table without putting the hours and the work in. And um, basically this is kind of um, to, to showcase that behind everything, behind every product, behind every victory, there is a, there is a lot of sacrifices and a lot of hard, hard work um, to be able to put things together. Well, I really love the way you just explained that. It sounds like a real passion project for you. So best of luck with, with that as it launches. Um, we're going to wrap things up with you here, but not before we put you through some grueling rapid fire, uh, quick for it. Sort of short answer questions here. So um, here we go. The first one is which guest that you've had on your podcast made you the most nervous perhaps about interviewing them? Ooh. Honestly, I never get nervous because they're my friends. <laughs> That's the difference, Ben. We need to get more of our friends on the podcast. I, guess, I know. Right? Well, I, I, I thought you were friends with Andy Murray, but uh, Daniela is, you know, <laughs> we need those connections. Um, but we are, we are at the end of the day, we are all friends. We are all the same. So I'm like, yeah, that's even true. if it's, I don't know who, why to get nervous to talk to someone. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, a guest, I suppose you'd most like to bring on your show. In the future? Yeah, in the future. Oh, good one. Um, okay, well, if I can go for it, Barack Obama. Oh, I like nice. that. Yeah, why restrict it to just tennis? Mm -hmm. um, what's the best thing about being Slovakian or that you would want people to know about Slovakia? Oh, good one. Um, well, everyone says that uh, the Slovakian girls are the prettiest, so I guess it's good to be part of that. No, just kidding. Um, the quality of life, it's, it's very, very good here. Um, everything's quite simple and um, the quality of friendships. Uh, maybe we take longer to open up, but then once we do, um, you know, whoever friend it is, it, it becomes almost like a part of our family. So I think we care a lot about people. So that's a, that's a beautiful quality I feel uh, we've got. And then our nature is just so beautiful, the mountains where I was born. Um, so I think the quality of life and friendships uh, and relationships and our mountains. I know you're not making a return, but uh, the thing you miss the most about being on tour? Um, definitely those few seconds after a match you win that you wouldn't really expect or after a shot you make that you don't even know how, how you did it is those few seconds of adrenaline that I know no matter what I do in life, that's, that's just never going to happen again. And I think that took the longest to kind of accept. Who's the opponent that you miss facing the most? Um, because maybe you just played really well and matched up well against them. And who's the opponent you miss facing the least on the tour? 
Um, I actually thought about it the other day because it's the time of Indian Wells now coming up. Um, so definitely Martina Hingis, uh, for some reason, uh, she always brought the best out of me, um, whether it was winning or losing against her. But I felt like we got into such a rhythm during the match that I think she was able to play her best tennis. I was able to play my best tennis. I think it was really, it became more of a chess game. So I really enjoyed all of our matches together. And the least, oh, oh, well, for sure, Patty Schneider. I mean, we played like 50 times together. And I think most of my three set matches are from those matches. So uh, definitely, Patty, I'm not missing at all. <laughs> uh, favorite place in the world that you've visited? Cape Town. That was quick. You're getting good at this rapid fire. Okay, last one. If you hadn't devoted your life to tennis, uh, what type of career would you have wanted to try? Hmm. I don't really think about that too much because I know my life was meant to be tennis. Um, hmm. Maybe uh, agency, <laughs> um, whether we tennis or other sports, because I, I love organizing things, managing things, being in charge. Um, yeah, probably a sport agency. And uh, last, last one for me, an athlete that you would most uh, like to meet in real life that you haven't had a chance to meet? To be? An athlete you would like to meet the most. Uh, to meet. Yes. Oof, good one. Mm, these are supposed to be quick uh, answers, right? <laughs> it's tough questions. Oh. Well, I've been very blessed that I, I got to meet some amazing ones. I don't, I've, I think I've met him. I think Roger. Uh, oh, okay. So yeah, we don't have to go too far. <laughs> I know <laughs> he's, a, he's a super special human being. So I think. Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining us again on, on Matchpoint Canada. Okay. It's been great chatting with you. It's, it's wonderful to see someone who leaves the sport, but just loves it so much that they want to stay so connected to it. And if, uh, if only everyone could feel that way about their uh, respective careers. So all the best to you with the uh, perfume, with the podcast, and we look forward to having you back again down the road. Thank you so much, guys, for having me, and good luck with the podcast as well. So there you have it, our interview with Daniela Hantukova. It, it was cool for me actually looking back at some of those classic matches she played and talking about the three setters. She played over 260 of them in her career, which is just unbelievable. And, you know, I was trying to make the parallel of, like, her and her, you know, coming back from injuries, I, I thought she had a, a pretty solid career in terms of longevity and returning from injuries. But I would say, like, if there's a player right now who's kind of the queen of three-setters, it feels like our Canadian Bianca <laughs> is always grinding through these long three-setters. And I don't know if that's going to be a pattern as we see her career unfold. unfold. But I was just thinking of that uh, as we spoke with uh, Hantukova. And obviously, she had so much success in those long matches as well. It's funny. I mean, you mentioned that in the interview with her and I got to be honest, like I had no idea. And, and I was a Hantukova fan, you know, before I was working in the media, I really liked her game. Um, but I had no idea that she had that many three setters or she was kind of known for that, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, but there, you know, there's a player who had enormous amounts of success. Uh, in singles, not Grand Slam success. She made the one final, but um, I think more well-known for her uh, single success in Indian Wells with the two titles that yes. she was able to get there. Um, and then, uh, you know, an, a tremendous doubles player, and she's got some mixed doubles slams to her name uh, as well. And um, 
I don't know why I feel the need to ask retired players if we'll ever see them come back to the sport again. <laughs> it's it's not because I don't want them to have, you know, a second career or third career or success beyond their their on court, um, you know, endeavors. Uh, but but I think with with Daniela, it's because I could still see her being successful, um, you know, maybe not as successful, clearly in the singles world, uh, but in doubles, definitely. And and because there have been so many players, especially on the women's side, who have unretired. I think of, you know, players like Kim Kleisters, who's coming back, and Martina Hingis, who came back just to play doubles towards the end of her career. Um, and, and I think also part of it, and I don't know how you feel about this, but there's so few players who are left from before my media days, um, you know, like Roger Federer, Rafa, mm-hmm. uh, and on the, the women's side, Serena, of course, and a few others. But I, I feel like once they've all retired, that's when my midlife crisis is going to hit because <laughs> it's going to be just a totally different, you know, game out there for me. And, and I won't have those attachments to players that I used to root for or go, go see live as a, just as a spectator. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up now because um, we just got a, an update from Kim Kleisters who's recovering from an injury. And, you know, she was attempting a comeback last year uh, to the tour. We saw her play actually, I believe at the U S open as well. Um, and we started playing in world team tennis and doing so great. And obviously it's able to play with all these top players and compete against them. She had a setback from injury and says she's still planning on coming back. This hasn't pushed off her plans of like making this comeback, returning to the tour. And it was just had me thinking back to that women's era and yeah, kind of the era I grew up in and fell in love with, with, with tennis, watching the women's side was that era of sort of Kleister's Hennen kind of vintage Venus, Serena Williams, then kind of taking over. And you, you think of the mainstays on the tour. And when I think of other names who were kind of on the cusp, at least sort of close, trying to compete for Grand Slam titles, and the names that come to mind are names like Daniela Hentikova, Elena Dementieva, players like that, Safina, who were all in the mix. And, uh, well, you know, now it's, now it's incredible to think Serena is still there. And uh, Daniela Hentikova, I, I think, like, mm, in my head, she should be, older because i feel like she played such she played for such a long time but really she's 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 not much older than me at all um <laughs> which uh and i'm not saying she looks old she looks great obviously um, yeah, and and she's you know she's clearly making the most of her retirement as a professional athlete and i think yeah. a lot of athletes have difficulty making that transition like look not every former top 10 or top 20 player can find a career working in sports media you know, working as a tennis commentator. It's not just because you've been a great player that you necessarily will make that transition into commentating or coaching or anything tennis related. But for Daniela, she seems really comfortable and really happy with what she's doing. And she's doing such a great job along with, of course, her, her podcast, which she started up a year ago. And I, I love listening to her talk about how it's just like casual conversations with her friends. Yeah. And I'm kind of jealous because <laughs> we are definitely making connections and, and building rapport and relationships with the players we talk to, but I wouldn't say any of them are friends that I'm texting on a weekend, like, Hey, what are you doing? You know? And, uh, and so kind of jealous that it's true for her, all these ones, male, female, former players or, or, or personalities in the game. Yeah. They are friends to her because she cultivated those relationships throughout her career. Yeah, I think that is a, one of the best aspects of that real DNA podcast, um, particularly her interview actually with Andy Murray that I listened to just the other week. It is such an honest and real conversation between two great athletes. 
that, um, yeah, I, I would love to say Andy Murray is a friend of mine. I would love to say, you know, Belinda Bencic and a few of these players, Hantu Kova, we're friends with them. You know, they, they have been great. And I, I feel like we've done a pretty good job building rapport. So hopefully they'll come back and share more with us. Um, but yeah, she, uh, she certainly has, I suppose, the, the leg up in terms of some of her connections, having forged such a great career in the sport. And um, I, I think you can also tell she's, she's a great person in terms of, maintaining and establishing relationships i don't think she's one of those players who held any bad blood or had any bad feuds while she was on the tour at all and and now um although i should say there was the aussie open final where i think she had that moment where there were some squeaky shoes squeaky shoes that's right squeaky shoes yeah who was that uh ivanovic uh, ivanovic i think you're right yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not was saying it there was her, bad blood. Was it there, her but... or Yankovic? Now I can't remember, actually. I want to say it was Anna Ivanovic, but I don't okay. have it up. So maybe some of okay. our listeners can correct us <laughs> or steer us down the right path on that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she certainly seems like someone who didn't have really any grudges, you know, that uh, that lasted beyond her career. And now she's got the new perfume as well. Yes, yes she does. Um, I, I know as we uh, were getting onto this episode, you're curious about the price of the perfume. <laughs> well, I didn't want to ask her as we were talking to her because, right. you know, what if it was something so, you know, extravagant that I, I should say something in mid-conversation that would, you know, be taken the wrong way. But uh, after the interview, I mean, I, I usually end up sending a message to our guest just saying like, hey, thanks for coming on again. You know, great chat. Let's do that again sometime. And so I did this with Daniela. And I went one step further and I said, you know, good luck with the perfume. Maybe I'll get a bottle for, for my wife or something like that, right? So she wrote me back and was like, oh, that would be great. Let me know if you need help facilitating that or anything like that. And I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't legitimately mean it. I was just trying to be polite, of course. Yeah, you know? of course. Yep. And then I Googled the price of the perfume. And I mean, good for Daniela. And I'm sure it's a wonderful perfume, but uh, comes to about just over $400 Canadian for a bottle. Okay. And so thank God I didn't put my foot in my mouth any further and say, yeah, send me the order details. Here's my credit card or anything, because I got to be honest, that's not going to fit the uh, COVID budget for me right now. No, no. Okay. All right. Well, I, I'm sure it is a lovely perfume if someone did want to splurge. Um, my wife's just not getting it. I just got to be honest. It's not. Okay. Well, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Uh, you know, lucky for you, she doesn't listen to this podcast. So she's not... <laughs> <laughs> Who, Daniela or my wife? <laughs> I, meant, I meant your wife, actually. Probably neither of them, actually. Uh, no, that's okay. That's okay. But uh, no, I, I am proud to hear that she's uh, launched uh, another business uh, releasing this perfume, which uh, as she told us, she was clearly very, very proud of and a real passion project uh, for her. We should move on to the tennis. You are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And when it comes to Canadian tennis, this past week has been uh, a great one. Starting on the women's side, we had Jeannie Bouchard making her eighth career WTA final. Really second final actually in a row because she was in the doubles final in Lyon, but second singles final in the past six months. She had a great run in Guadalajara, Mexico, um, before falling to Sarah Cerebe's Tormo, the Spanish player, 6275. Uh, Tormo capturing, uh, Cerebe's Tormo, pardon me, capturing her first career title. Uh, Jeannie Bouchard falling to one in seven in finals, but uh, another positive step for her, and she is jumping up in the rankings now, number 160. Team, which I think is a great sign. If we go back two years, and it's kind of remarkable, it was two years ago now, but that's when her slide really started. Um, February 2019, she started a, a unfortunate streak of 13 straight losses. Um, and that went all the way to November of 2019, which is a heck of a long time for any professional athlete to go 
uh, without tasting victory. And we spoke to her that summer in August at the Rogers Cup. It was the first time we spoke with Jeannie. It was her first tennis podcast appearance. So that was kind of cool. And she mm -hmm. was in the midst of this killer slump. Uh, and it was right before she played against Bianca Andreescu. And she played her in a real tough match. And that could have gone Jeannie's way. And you kind of wonder what would have happened to Bianca if she hadn't won that Rogers Cup. But anyways, uh, Jeannie's attitude when she spoke to us, I thought, was just so uh, positive given what she had been through. And she wasn't mm -hmm. shying away from our questions. I mean, not that we were asking like terribly difficult questions, but we certainly didn't shy away from asking about the slump and how it felt and whatnot. And, uh, you know, she said how no one could take away the previous success she had and that she was confident she could get back to a really good level again. And there were a lot of haters out there. And, and it's very rare that I feel the need to come to the defense of certain players. But I've always felt with Jeannie because she's been kind to us on the podcast and because we've seen how hard she's been working uh, yeah. in practice to get back to a uh, top level of the WTA tour, at least the top 100, certainly. And so I feel really like, I don't want to say personally vindicated, but I feel really good for Jeannie to have this moment and to be pushing back into the top 100 in the game. It's well-deserved. I, I think a lot of players would have considered either potentially an early retirement at that stage. She had slipped to almost 350th in the rankings, or if mm -hmm. not a retirement, I think a lot of players might've taken a little break from the game and Jeannie didn't do that. She kept working and she kept putting up with the questions and the comments on social media. And so I feel like it's, uh, you know, very well deserved for her to have this success and uh, really interested and excited now to see, you know, where she goes from here. She's going to start getting, you know, more direct entry into tournaments and uh, the, the confidence clearly is going to help her as well moving forward. You know, the, the most astonishing thing for me about this week in Guadalajara is the fact that she chose to play this event at all. If you think about where she was in the world, her previous tournament playing in Lyon, True. she makes she makes a final in doubles. And she said her travel from France to Guadalajara to get to this tournament on site total was 35 hours, 35 hours. So she arrived in Mexico. Uh, she said nine o'clock that Sunday night has to get ready and play a match on Monday. She goes out, she rallies from down to set down to Dolahide and then wins a few matches in succession, beats Katie McNally straight sets, which is another great win for her to, to reach this final. So I, like for me, um, it shows, I think, her passion and dedication for tennis. And uh, I think some people on the outside, um, they see sort of a social media darling who they think they, they don't, as you said, they don't see the work that she's putting in. They don't believe maybe she's that committed to tennis. And I, I think that the opposite is true. And uh, she's turning around after a long tournament, two long tournaments in a row now, and set to play in Monterey. Um, you know, I was, I was in her press conference after the loss. I, I sensed frustration that um, she wants to kind of come through in these tournament finals. Um, she's been to eight of them now. Seven of them have been on the losing end. Uh, at one point, uh, she dropped four games in a row to lose that second set and lose the match. And at one point she made the comparison to, she felt like she was caught in some 12 and under tennis, uh, which that, that comment struck to me sort of her frustration of like, she felt like she should have won this final. Um, but to me, that's a good sign. To me, that's like, you know, a competitive spirit, uh, an athlete desiring to get back to the top of the game, an athlete desiring to lift a trophy again, because it's been since 2014. It, it's been, you know, a number of years since we've seen peak success from Jeannie. So I think she's hungry for a lot more. And I, I certainly don't think she's satisfied just with the final either. Yeah. And this one being in straight sets, I'm sure kind of, uh, you know, burns a little bit. Um, I'm sure when you get to that moment, you start 
sort of trying to push out those, you know, thoughts coming into your head about how close you are and what a struggle right. it's been and, and how much you want it. Um, certainly she was very close in Istanbul back in the fall, back in very, September yep. when she fell in a third set tie break uh, in that one. But uh, even here, you know, she's, she's making positive strides forward. Uh, I think you can only look at the positive here. And I'm sure after that frustrating, um, you know, final, how it went and, and having to do press shortly thereafter. But I think probably shortly after that, looking back on it all, she's probably feeling pretty darn good. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think, I, I think she, I think she decided it was, it was clearly a worthwhile trip. Imagine how frustrating it would be. You go all the way to Guadalajara and you lose first round, which could have happened. You know, she was down a set already in that first match. Um, so for her to, I think rally and make a final here is, is fantastic. And just, just sticking up for her a little more. I, I know you've done so in the past. And I, I saw, I remember seeing a really bad headline after she failed to qualify for the Australian Open. It said something like Jeannie Bouchard misses out on qualifying for Australian Open ranking sitting at 140 something. And just like, you know, being very angry at something like that, because this was a player who her ranking fell out of you know, 300, it fell down to 332 at one point in the last, you know, 18 plus months. So really for her ranking now to be 116, it shows she's currently one of the most improved players on tour in terms of her ranking, in terms of the strides she makes. Um, I, I think it's something to be writing positively about. Yeah, anyone writing that kind of crap, you know, is clearly someone who's not putting half the effort into their profession as Jeannie's putting into hers, right? Exactly. That's just, that's just lazy journal. I wouldn't even call it journalism, right? That's just looking for a sensational click on, on the internet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, continuing on the women's side, we did have uh, the event in Dubai, of course, the men playing there this week. But on the women's side, it was Garbina Muguruza capturing uh, the title over Barbara Kreitschkova in straight sets, 7-6-6-3. And for me, Garbina Muguruza in 2021, I would say she has been the second best player uh, in the world on the women's side uh, of the field. If you look at this season that she's compiled three finals, one title, 18 and four on the season, those 18 wins lead the tour. And she had looks at two match points against Naomi Osaka, who won the Australian open. This is really reminding, or at least reminiscent of the level we saw from her, I think in 2016, 2017, when she was winning grand slam titles. Yeah. Wimbledon in 2016 French open in 2017. And I mean, that would have been at, uh, at what about 22, 23 years old you'd think she'd be older now because it feels like she's been around for a while. She's only 27 years old and, and really sort of course corrected at the start of 2020. I feel like when she made the Aussie open finals, yep. um, losing to Kennan. Uh, and in that match, by the time she got to the finals, I think we were mostly considering her to be the favorite at that point. Um, but uh, she's a big match player. She's, she's always done well in those pressure moments at the slams. And now she's showing that consistency again in, in other WTA events. So, uh, Again, just a wonderful addition. I want to say addition to the top 10. She's not quite back in the top 10, but I think getting pretty close um, and certainly someone that we've considered a big time player, even when her ranking slid down, uh, always someone that we thought big things were still, you know, in the cards for. Yeah, certainly. Number 13 now in the world, moving up three spots. One of those players, like I think we have a few of those players kind of in the top 20 to 25. You feel like their level that they're capable of it's top five, top 10. And for me, Muguruza is one of those players. And I, I think certainly the way she's playing right now, um, you know, French Open, it's it's a couple months away. She's going to be on my short list, I think, of contenders on clay. We've seen her do it there before. Uh, but but such a stretch of momentum right now um, for Garbina 
and definitely one of the best players of the season so far. I just wanted to point out one thing that took place in this final. You want to talk, about, the, you want to talk about the bathroom break? Is that it? I, we have to touch on it because our friend Renee Stubbs on, on Twitter was quite livid. And Conchita M- Mar- Martinez also, who's coached Mar- uh, Muguruza, uh, weighed in as well. Uh, the first set went 7-6. Very, very competitive long first set between these two players. It was high quality as well. And uh, Muguruza ekes it out in the tie break. Krejcikova goes for a bathroom break. And between points um, from this break before she got back on court and was ready to play, it was 12 minutes. Now, I, I take issue with this. Um, I, I just can't conceive Krychikova leaving the court for a 12-minute bathroom break if she had won that first set. Am yeah, so, I wrong? So, so I just want to say a couple of things here. I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate sure. because it's, it's kind of fun. First, I mean, first of all, it's within the rules it's allowed. So it's, yes. you can almost not, you can't blame Krychikova for doing something which she's entitled to do, which many players do. I'm not saying I like it necessarily. I'm not saying that there isn't uh, the need for discussion for some sort of reform here. Uh, but the other thing is, okay, so 12 minutes, right? How close are the washrooms to the court? Like, I, I don't have all this information. That's I don't have a, I don't have the schematics of how the, the tournament is. I mean, think about, let's just talk about the tournament we know best, which is the, I was going to say, anyways, National Bank Open. Yeah. Um, if you're playing on the grandstand court, which is the furthest one from, um, you know, the Aviva Center, from the center court there, if you have to take a bathroom break and you've got to walk all the way back to center court area and back to grandstand again, and you got to fight through the crowds and whatnot. Yeah. You got to get there. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, you know, now with COVID and the pandemic, you got to wash your hands for like a full rendition of happy birthday or whatever it is. Right. Like I can see how 12 minutes, it could take that long depending okay. on where the washroom is in relation to the court. Uh, I, I'm not saying that it wasn't exaggerated or, or used to her advantage, but I'm saying, you know, just to flip it for a second, could very well be that that's the amount of time that it, it takes to, to make your way there and back. That's conceivable, though I think generally, I mean, I can't speak for the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships, but generally center court and bathroom locations, there's generally a specific area where these players are are coming onto court and they're coming out of an area which features change rooms. So when I've seen kind of cameras venture back to see what players are doing, you get the sense that washrooms are right in the vicinity. So I, I feel like the bathroom probably wasn't that far away. Certainly you're right. If you're talking about a side court at the national bank open, you wonder if uh, one of those players gets, gets a little vehicle kind of golf cart type of ride to go to the washroom if that were needed. I don't think that was the situation there. Um, You're right though. There, there isn't a rule to enforce this. Like what happens if she takes 25 minutes? Does, does anything happen? So I, I think there needs to be something written in the rule book of a certain allotted time of, you know, what's yeah, reasonable. They need a clock. They need a clock like the serve clock, but it's right. The, so the, the so five, clock. five minutes, maybe to me, like once, once you push path past the point of like seven or eight minutes, I I'm just sensing this is intentional gamesmanship. Sure, that's I mean, just, that's just how my read of it intended to just disrupt the rhythm of your opponent. Maybe it's exactly. a point per every 30 seconds to minute you go over a certain time. Right. And that's uh, yeah. what, and that's what Renee Stubbs was advocating for. And, you know, she complained on Twitter about a nine minute bathroom break and Conchita, Monti- Conchita Martinez coach in Muguruza, came in and said it was actually 12 minutes. Yeah. But so. you, you know, you know what, like they all do it. And I mean, okay, I'm sort of blanketing the entire tour here, but like, sure. this isn't new. 
right? Like expressing right. outrage. I, it's hard for me to like, you know, express outrage at this. This has been going on for how long now? This is not like yeah. a new thing that that's suddenly come up. So yeah, uh, the sport has to put something in place. Otherwise it's, yeah, it's going to carry on. Yes, it'll continue to be abused. Uh, we should move over to the men's side. And, and the big storyline of this past week is making a return from a pair of knee surgeries and 14 months off tour. Roger Federer was back in action uh, competing in Doha. He played two matches, two three-set matches, both entertaining matches. Uh, played Dan Evans, which I thought was a fascinating matchup because Dan Evans stylistically almost looks a little bit like a mini Roger Federer. So for them to kind of go toe-to-toe, 7-5 in the fifth, Federer wins that one, then loses the second match to Nikolos Vasilashvili, who would go on to win the title. But for me, you haven't played a professional tour match in 14-plus months. You're 39 years old. You pick up one win in Doha against a top 40 player like Dan Evans, go another three sets with Vasilashvili, someone who has multiple titles on tour. That's a positive week for me. Yeah, and for me, the biggest positive was the fact that Roger seemed to have the confidence to be going for all of his shots for his full mm. repertoire of shots. In that third set against Evans, I didn't catch the second match, I got to be honest, but in the third set of his match against Evans, he went for this swinging volley uh, dry volley and, and he messed up the first one and then on the very next point he went for the same shot again and he nailed it so there was no like you know uh, timidness or, or tentativeness he was going for it whether it worked or not and just some of those shots some of those one hand backhands and and the serve seemed to be going really good after that big of a layoff super impressive for me um, I mean gosh how did the tennis world survive without Federer for so long I'm just <laughs> I'm just I'm kidding I'm kidding yeah. um in fact, there was so much good to come out of his, not to come out of his absence, but to come out during his absence in terms of other players stepping up. And, and of course, Djokovic's continued dominance and, and Nadal having some great moments along with the other guys coming along and proving that they belong in the top five, top 10 as well and are ready to challenge. Um, but for, for me, it was just great to see him back. Of course, tennis is better having him there just like it is any member of the big three. Um, I, I am concerned, however, with the fact that uh, after that loss, he decided almost immediately or shortly thereafter to pull out of the next tournament he was scheduled for in Dubai, right. uh, a place that's in the tam- same time zone. It's a, a short trip over from, from Doha. It's a place that he's played really, really well in the past. So mm-hmm. all sorts of confidence at that venue. Uh, kind of alarming for me that even with the days off he would have until his first match, that he should have to pull out. And to me, it, it, it speaks to the fact that could there be, um, you know, a recurrence or, or something health-wise that uh, that isn't quite correct at this time? Yeah, I, I'm hoping ideally maybe he's, he's trying to save himself for Miami. Of course, we don't get the tandem of Indian Wells-Miami this time. Indian Wells is outright I don't think canceled. he's playing Miami, though. I think he had already mentioned that he's not oh, going to Miami. So he's not, so he's not even... That's uh, right. Okay, so realistically, I don't think we're going to see him play another hardcore event. That's it. Um, but I, I think he is planning to play some clay tournaments. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by the fact that he, he said that he's kind of leaving that door open because I thought months ago he kind of alluded to the fact there wouldn't be any clay this year. Yeah. Um, but, but now it seems like if he can't continue with his second hardcourt tournament, maybe he wants to get just a few more matches in before switching right. over to grass. But yeah. yeah, it's just kind of concerning to me. Why wouldn't you go to Dubai? Wouldn't you think you'd want to get in some more match play? And who cares about the result unless right. there's something that's... And maybe it's not the knee. Maybe it's something else that just through two matches, two three-set matches, you know, who, who knows, maybe a back thing, a hamstring, whatever it could be, 
So maybe it's something just small, minute that he's playing it careful with. You know, you just hope it's not the knee. Yeah, I, I certainly hope it isn't. One, one thing that struck me, you're talking about him playing so freely, which was, I think, nice to see. And uh, he was talking about finding his shots coming back after a long layoff. And you mentioned how great his serve was. And uh, he had a great comment in press talking about, like, I think someone could wake me up out of bed at three in the morning and put me on a court and I, I'm comfortable my serve would still be there. <laughs> so the, the serve is kind of the ultimate in muscle memory for Roger Federer. Um, and and I, I, I was glad to hear him point that out in press um, because the serve looked dialed in. And, and this is one of, one of uh, the strengths of Federer's game, why he's always such a threat, even, even if he is just making a return to tour. If he's hitting his spots on this serve so consistently, he's always going to be so unbelievably difficult to break. So, um, you know, he, he could have won, won that second match. He could have stayed alive in this, alive in this tournament and taken it further even. 7-5 um, in the third, losing to Basilashvili in his first tournament back in 14 months um unfortunately we won't see him in dubai but uh, that's okay basilashvili as i said went, went on to win the tournament he defeated uh, roberto bautista agut in the final oh um, one of your faves one of your faves rba rba i know he's made two finals this year and he had won um doha a couple of years ago i was thinking he would win the, uh, this time around once he reached the final but not the case but uh, he seems to be playing good tennis again after an early exit at the australian open uh so no better in dubai Shapovalov, I should mention, he went out to Taylor Fritz here in Doha, and this felt like Fritz kind of avenging that U.S. Open, <laughs> the US Open. from last year, their thrilling five-setter. In this case, they went to 7-5 in the third. There was a couple breaks of serve, and um, I feel like this is a good rivalry brewing between Canadian and American. They're both like young 20s, kind of similar age, a bit different game stylistically, but they always go like, you know, tooth and nail right, to, right down to the wire. Hey, man, we've been talking about this whole Canada-U.S. rivalry for the last couple of years and wanting to see it a real thing in tennis. And uh, this is definitely, you know, helping to get it there along with on the women's side. Gosh, we'd love to see Bianca play against Kennan some more yep. um, and, and other American players like that. So uh, I'm all for it. And definitely those two just seem to, yeah, bring out some pretty entertaining tennis in, in one another. Um, Chapeau's got a tough draw in his next event in the sense that he may very well be facing Jan Leonard Struff in... Uh, I believe it's the second round there. And he has not had a whole ton of success against the German. Uh, Whenever I see Struff's name uh, next to a Canadian's, I'm like, oh, not again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, thankfully, it's not Pospisil next to Chapo. They're in opposite ends, I believe. But uh, Yeah, that's true. And we should mention Vashik Pospisil. Also, this is a very difficult draw for him. Martin Fuksevich is coming off one of the best tournaments of his career. He just made the final in Rotterdam at that ATP 500. So he's obviously playing with a ton of confidence. So that's a tough matchup for Pospisil. I will say on the sense of Jan Leonard Struff, I think now is the time to catch him. He went out early in Australia. I think he lost first round as well in Rotterdam. Um, he's lost, I think now three consecutive matches. So you're catching him at a low point. And I think Dennis has to capitalize on this because the Struff has, has really owned that head to head so far. Yeah. And even if Struff isn't on a low or what have you, even if he's playing great tennis, I mean, yeah, Dennis has to find a way to win these kinds of matches too. If he wants to prove that he belongs in the, yeah. in the top 10, right? You got, yeah. you got to win matches like this. Absolutely. Um, Dominic team, I should mention is the top seed at this event. Andre Rublev seated second. 
very funny this past week he reached the semifinals without playing a single match and then lost to Roberto Batista group had two walkovers um, onto the semifinals I think it almost hurt him playing a, a player like RBA who's kind of a wall at the baseline uh, I don't think it really worked in Andre's favor but he'll be back uh, as the number two seed I just want to mention Danil Medvedev winning the Open 13 Provence in Marseille um, beating Pierre Hugues-Herbert in three sets that's his 10th career ATP title which is quite a number at his age, honestly, very impressive. And more significantly here, he moves up to number two in the rankings, overtaking Rafael Nadal. That sounds just so bizarre to even hear you say that. I mean, I know it's true, but it's just mm-hmm. almost like I don't believe it um, just because it's, it's been a heck of a long time, really. And how many people have occupied the number two slot behind Federer, Djokovic or Nadal these past 15 years? Uh, I don't have that stat written down, by the way, but there haven't been many. Yeah. So, Well, for, for comparison's sake, Stan Wawrinka, who owns three Grand Slam titles, also an additional French Open final, has never. He's, he's never been higher than number three in the rankings. So yeah. it, is, it is very rare when we get an additional name outside of what we used to call the big four with Andy Murray and certainly the big three um, taking second spot in the rankings. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Medvedev, as much as that's a great personal accomplishment and I'm sure he's no doubt happy to be moving up. um, I think any player would trade a ranking number for the grand slam success. I mean, look at a Marcelo Rios who was once number one in the ATP never had a grand slam. And, you know, I'm not trying to say Medvedev is that type of player because I think he's bound to get one, if not several grand slams, but uh, yeah, the number's a good thing. The ranking's a good thing, but uh, he's going to be hungry for the next slam opportunity. And, um, you know, I think in 2021, whether it's him or a team or a Zverev, uh, we're going to see another one of these next gen kind of guys um, have another slam this calendar year. I don't think it's just going to be a Djokovic Nadal kind of uh, slam uh, sweep this year. Yeah, we'll see. There are three more opportunities for them, at least. Um, just other news. Andy Murray and wife Kim Spears welcomed their fourth child. I hadn't realized they actually had so many, but now I, I didn't know they had that many either, to be honest. No, I, I thought they only had two, but uh, now they have a, a fourth. So I didn't know he was that close to reaching Rogers' level of, uh, you know, <laughs> dependence. Right. Yeah, that's right. And um, you had this breaking piece of Milos Raonic news. I actually missed out, and you informed me um, that he cut his hair. The big haircut, finally. I mean, we we joked with Milos when we spoke with him. Um, earlier this year, right? It was this calendar year. I think it was one of our first episodes of 2021. We spoke with Milos and we joked with him at the end of the episode, Hey, what's going to happen first, your return to the top 10 or the haircut. Um, And and to me, it almost seemed like the top 10 return was, was going to be more imminent because he seemed to really love those long locks. And and he said to us, you know, with a smile on his face, well, hopefully return to the top hand top 10 turns out it's the haircut that comes first. And uh, I got to say, it's probably because, that hair, that flow was starting to slow down his movement on the court. It was getting so long. <laughs> That's quite possible. I should mention um, he's playing his first event since the Australian Open where he lost to Djokovic um, in Acapulco. Normally we say Nadal there, but he pulled out. Um, but Roundage is there and he will face American Tommy Paul in the first round. So uh, we will have Roundage back um, playing tennis. Felix Oje Aliasim is also in that field first matchup against Tennis Sandgren. So we have two Canadians in Dubai and then two Canadians at the other ATP 500 in Acapulco. There you go. Go Canada, go. And on yeah. that note, uh, thanks again to Daniela Hontakova for joining us for her second ever appearance on Match Point Canada. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Looking forward to catching up with you again next week.